I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. Now today, and you might have a clue from the small sound of kind of call centre activity going on in the background, uh, I'm talking to the co-founder and CEO of Urban Jungle. That's Jimmy Williams. Uh, Urban Jungle is a new insurance provider that's using technology to build products for a completely new generation of customers and in the process shaking up the industry. So Jimmy, huge welcome to the podcast. Now my first question I suppose is how are you shaking up an industry which a lot of people have considered fairly moribund and lacking in innovation? Uh, How principally are you using technology to reinvent it? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. Um, very, very nice to be here. Uh, so um, there's three things really that make Urban Jungle different. Um, two of them really related to technology and then one of them to do with kind of different kinds of innovation. So um, first of all, uh, we use technology to automate a lot of things. So if you're one of our customers, uh, you'll know straight away that uh, actually there isn't, isn't much of a call center. Like we ha- you can phone us if you want, but um, generally speaking, you can do everything you want online and you don't need to interact and sit on hold for 20 minutes just to get just to get stuff done um, that helps us keep costs low um, kind of obviously and uh, and that's really helpful we can pass that on to our customers um, the second is we use um, data in some quite interesting ways so uh, fraud is a really big problem in the insurance world um, and we use sort of new methods of data and machine learning to help spot fraud and, and, and sort of reduce that which again helps us keep costs low so we're paying fewer fraudulent claims than, than the big guys are um, and then the third thing, which is really important, but, but not, not tech-based at all, really, um, which is about how we think about designing products. So um, our observation of the insurance industry, uh, aside from its problem with, problems with technology, is that it's really one-size-fits-all. So they don't care who you are. They don't care if you're like, you know, um, uh, you know, big house, big family, dogs, big garden, big house in the countryside, or in a one person in a one bed flat in the centre of London, basically the insurance policy is the same, the cover's the same, the experience is the same. Um, so we really focus on customer segments, understand them, build products and experiences for them. Um, and that's another way we differentiate that's not just about price. Um, and that, uh, just to give you an example of that, so we started out particularly focused on young urban renters. That was our first sort of landing point. Um, and one of the things you realize about renters very, very quickly is they move house all the time. So uh, we have really cracked that. It's very easy to move your policy with you. It's very easy to move a housemate in and a housemate out because that all happens all the time. So that sort of thing is, is the kind of thing we really differentiate on. Which explains the name Urban Jungle to start with. Exactly, yeah. So how do you, um, in an age of comparison websites which largely compare on price and nothing else obviously you can differentiate yourself on price uh, provided of course um, uh, you have access to the right data enough data to actually differentiate yourself on price in the first place Um, but how uh, it's always struck me that insurance it's not quite as extreme as pensions but the problem with insurance is it suffers from what I call the Japanese toilet problem 
And the, the reason I call it this is a Japanese toilet, which I have, I have one myself, is an utterly brilliant thing. Um, in fact, once you own one, you'd never go back. But you never discover that until you own it. And so insurance is, I suppose, what you know economists would call an experience good. It's also a deferred benefits good in that you only really discover its value some distance in time from actually making the first purchase decision. It's not like shampoo, where the feedback loop uh, is fairly rapid. Um, what do you do to market yourself to, to make this difference apparent in advance, as it were? Yeah, it's very, very insightful. I think, um, you know, to put it another way, and I do also love Japanese toilets. I wish I had one. Uh, um, they're quite expensive, right? They should. They probably should have a referral program, shouldn't they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we we had we had we had to replace an existing toilet. Right. And um, without going into huge details, they're not crazy as long as you don't go for the extra extra options like the uh, the drying function or the thing that <laughs> the plays music. Stuff, yeah. If if you get the basic shower toilet, it's actually you know a few hundred pounds more. There are also after fit you know aftermarket uh, um, additions you can add to an existing toilet. Um, but I, 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 we obviously won't make this. My task for the weekend. Um, exactly. no, yeah. Uh, so uh, I think that's very insightful. And um, to give you another analogy that sort of tells it from the other side, that we see insurance being bought like a commodity. So it's bought like energy. And it's not like with energy, um, you can make your kettle boil any faster or your electric toilet uh, fire water any faster. Um, uh, and as you say, it's not, it's not a commodity. You don't really find out like what it is until later. So we've thought very carefully about that. I think, you know, how does that manifest itself? So we see the big guys um, uh, have really shaped their business model to make the most of that fact. So they charge the cheapest price possible on day one. And then it's all about what you can hide after that. So there's hidden fees. There's what has become known as the loyalty penalty, where they just gradually walk your price up year after year and hope you don't notice. Um, you know, there's massive uh, interest rates for, for, for paying monthly. Um, so the, the bet we're making is that uh, we have this sort of company value, uh, which we call customer first, but then sort of the subheader of that, which I really like, is that we, we always try and do the right thing even when nobody's watching. Um, and that is essentially what you have to do here because all your incentives are to like just sell on price and hide everything else like that's you know that is the way to easily i guess build it build a successful business in insurance but not not in the long term right and i think uh we do believe that there is an opportunity to build a brand in insurance that is differentiated on being the, the trustworthy player being fair um, looking after your customers that, and that if you play the long game of doing the right thing consistently that the people will eventually notice. I think, um, you know, that, that is hard, right? Like that's um, it's one of our biggest challenges, which you sort of jumped to uh, straight away, is to communicate that. Good news is we've got some, some prize tools in our pocket, which, which help and it means we can be competitive. I think our shortcut to try and get people to that is this whole thing about being really tailored to a customer. So if you are a young professional renter, you get to our site and you're like, oh yeah, this is for me. And you don't necessarily like process every single feature that, you know, you know one of the things, for example, that we do is um, we worked out that about 70% of claims in our target segment are for accidental damage claims. So, you know, you knock over a coffee cup over your laptop or something like that. Um, and the big guys basically will have that as an optional extra and charge a lot for it, which creates an incentive for you not to buy it. And as a result, take up is only about 20%. Whereas we've worked out that actually that's, that's what you need. That's what you should get insurance for because that's what happens most often in our segment. So we include it as standard. Um, I think that sort of thing, yeah, over time you can kind of get to, it's like, you know, the reason I'm getting this is because I, my mate got his really expensive MacBook uh, covered in coffee and it was two and a half grand out of pocket so that's why I'm here and I, hopefully people can kind of get get that and we're, you know we're getting somewhere so there must be at least some people who are. Uh, so interestingly uh, my guess would be that a huge proportion of the um, uh, the, the urban uh, what, what, what I'd say is a huge proportion of the urban renter market is actually uninsured is that fair? Yeah so it's about 60% are uninsured at all yeah. And that may be simply because 
one, it never occurs to them, two, they can't afford it. But the third option is they've never really seen an insurance option which is actually designed for them. And exactly. uh, the whole language of insurance effectively is homeowner focused. And so you have an op- opportunity, I suppose, to distinguish yourself just in terms of the language you use. So about 80% of our customers are new to insurance, so didn't have an insurance policy when they bought with us. So exactly, that's, that's our segment, is the, is the sort of new to market people. It's, it's, it's really interesting, because I think there's another problem which I think uh, is never spotted, which is in, in, in markets which tend to be regulated, the regulators who tend to be trained in economics think their job is to commoditize something so that the providers can compete solely on price. And I've had discussions about that with Richard Thaler, Nobel Prize winning economist, who had various ideas where consumers' savings would automatically move to the savings account which paid the highest rate of interest. And my argument was, first of all, in the short term, you know, what would that mean? First of all, everybody's money would get concentrated in the bank that was most desperate to be capitalised, which is a terrible way to fragilise the market. And you've, you're almost creating 2008 all over again by doing that. But also everything else, like customer service, and also differentiation and variety, then gets destroyed. So, you know, so innovation gets destroyed in those markets which have been commoditized. And I think the privatization of the railways was an example of that very economic approach, which was all about really price and punctuality. And nobody then was free really to innovate in other ways, like levels of customer service, comfort, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, new forms of ticketing, new forms of pricing, uh, never really emerged. So it took a pandemic, for example, for the, tempor- you know, the part-time season ticket to be introduced, which has been something which, to be honest, for part-time workers has been a massive injustice for about the last eight years because people who only travel to work three days a week are the least well-paid people but they often end up paying a full fare ticket because the season ticket isn't for them and so i think in tightly regulated markets it often makes it very difficult to innovate and it always worries me about insurance comparison websites which is comparing what and actually an insurance comparison website isn't really comparing on quality it's comparing on price and as a result, you end up with a kind of race to the bottom where everybody competes to provide something highly generic that's only optimised around the kind of data that the insurance comparison website looks at and where the only real comparison takes place at the level of price when fairly obviously innovation quite often happens because someone focuses on something entirely different. Your point about accidental cover, which is uh, sold as an optional extra, which is, as you say, totally inappropriate to the urban jungle market because the main form of cover they want is effectively someone tipping coffee all over their laptop. Um, and so I, I find that really interesting because it's, it's, it makes it a market where there should be much, much more differentiation. But to some extent, the nature of the market and the way in which it's experienced makes differentiation harder. Do you do a referral program so that people who are happy can actually recommend and introduce other people they know? Yeah, we do. And it's been uh, definitely an important and growing part of our success um, is that referral program or also just some good old-fashioned word of mouth. I think um, sometimes we occasionally come across these, uh, let's call them super users for want of a better word, where they, they own 20 policies or something, um, or their, their email address has 20 policies, and then you sort of look into it and they've, it's some grandma that's bought it for every single child, or uh, sometimes these kind of minor institutions that, um, there was a cricket club, for example, where all the players who were, living temporarily in uh, the cricket club accommodation, had all of their insurance bought for them. I think um, that stuff, you know, because we built all this difference in, does, does tend to kind of grab people. I mean, there's a very interesting innovation in the car insurance market, isn't there, which is short-term car insurance. I can't remember the name of the brand that offers it now, uh, which I should be able to remember. But it, it does occur to me that insurance has become incredibly homogeneous. So the cricket club, they were basically sharing team quarters for a short period and you were able to insure them just for the duration of their stay. Yeah, so um, one of the kind of innovations we've come up with, um, so the way most insurance companies let you pay monthly is they effectively uh, make you take out um, a kind of finance contract. So you, they lend you yeah. the money for the year and then you pay back a loan. 
And then that has all sorts of negative consequences for your credit score, for example, if you don't pay it back and it's very complicated. Um, we just um, made a monthly policy where it's kind of genuine pay-as-you-go, um, you know, no, no commitment for a year. You just, you can have it for a month, two months, whatever, and then, you know, switch it on, switch it off, um, which has been very kind of attractive to our audience. Will you get into car insurance, do you think? Is that a plan? Yeah, so the uh, long-term, definitely. Um, I think the thing about the insurance space is the, um, I think what a lot of people don't realise is your average UK family spends more on insurance per year than um, alcohol and cigarettes put together. It's absolutely massive household spend. So, um, you know, we like to remain focused and, I don't, you know, we don't want to be trying to do everything for everyone all the time. And um, we're trying to be really differentiated where we are rather than trying to, like, fill the map. But, um, yeah, certainly, you know, we ha- we're very ambitious and that's on the list at some point. The other interesting thing is you doubled, you actually doubled your customer base during the pandemic. Uh, now, I would have assumed that a lot of people during the pandemic would have thought, well, I'm at home, therefore my need for insurance has diminished because, you know, I'm less likely to be burgled, although it's by no means impossible. One would remind cautious and responsible people. But um, what do you think contributed to that? Was that uh, because I would have thought that most insurance uh, companies, particularly selling contents insurance, either remained static or experienced a small decline. Um, what, what's driving the growth? Do you have a particular advertising secret? Do you have a particular uh, promotional secret? Or did you respond to the pandemic in particular ways? Insurance is is not a COVID positive market. It's not like it's um, no. you know, home deliveries, but it is always very recession resilient. Um, and what tends to happen is when you hit a recession, uh, people uh, are less able to deal with financial shock. So their jobs are a bit less secure. They're worried that, you know, we, we, like, we're getting a lot of claims still. The yes, burglaries are down, but, you know, uh, home fires are up, uh, for example, because people yes. are starting stuff at home. Um, so people just aren't, aren't able to deal with uh, that kind of financial shock as well. So they, they kind of go for that reassurance. The other thing that happens, which helped us, is if, you, if your belt's getting tightened a bit, um, you also, and you're at home and you've got time to do things, uh, you ah. switch your insurance, um, and so particularly last year, in the kind of you know first lockdown, that was yeah everyone. You switch your energy, you switch your insurance, you switch everything, and you you kind of um, get your life sorted. It's interesting that actually, which is the economy in a weird way has probably benefited from what you might call digital spring cleaning, in that people did undoubtedly take COVID, particularly during the first lockdown as a sort of opportunity to actually, you know, a family podcast, but get their shit together, Um, which in the course of ordinary working life is incredibly difficult, in fact, because it effectively involves wasting a quarter of a weekend. And so, you know, using commute time or other time to actually improve, you know, to just go and rationalise what on earth you spend money on and what you don't. Um, I think, you know, I think, I think ironically, you know, um, periods of this kind should be artificially created. I don't mean we should artificially create um, viruses. What I mean is that it would probably benefit society uh, if we had occasional what you might call um, fire breaks in the system of behaviour. Because I think it generally benefits, as we've seen with home delivery, and obviously home delivery had particular constraints early on, um, but it, it, it does actually nudge people into experimenting with new behaviours, some of which they then keep after the actual pandemic is over. Uh, there's, there's a wonderful, actually, experiment which looked at the effect on travel behaviour of a, of a partial tube strike in London a few years ago, where they looked at Oyster Card data and discovered that the tube strike, which was only on about four lines forced a lot of people to reinvent their commute for the duration of the three-day strike. But what was really interesting is a significant number of people continued with a different route to work after the strike had been over. In other words, it, was, it basically forced people to experiment. Yeah. Because, you know, there's a huge tendency, once you know your route to work, and this is the insurance market suffers from this, once you know your route for work and you know, I don't want to be late today... There's a huge disincentive to experiment because, yes, you might find you save five minutes, but then if there's a one in three risk that you turn up for work 15 minutes late, you won't actually take that risk. And so it was quite interesting how the impetus to do something differently actually leads people to discover better ways of doing things. Um, 
you know, it's interesting. Meal, meal kits, actually, Gusto, for example, or Hello Fresh, are a very interesting example of the Japanese toilet phenomenon because I think, I must admit, when the, when the concept was first introduced to me, I thought it was kind of insane because I go, I've got recipe books. You know, I've got a Cardo and Tesco who'll deliver. I can get ingredients, order ingredients, cook food. What the hell is the point of a recipe box? Well, for some reason I don't fully understand, when you get a recipe box, you actually cook the meals <laughs> because you have everything in the right ratio. There's the pleasure of not having to waste six tonnes of cumin just in order to, you know, cook one thing. And psychologically, it works in a way I never anticipated. And so, I, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued always by the possibility that actually, if you look at religions, they tend to have things like Lent or Ramadan, okay? They build disruption into the system because I think they've learnt that actually, you know, having uh, temporary constraints on behaviour ultimately ends up improving behaviour. So I think how people, I think the other thing people may have decided is they want a slightly slower pace of life. Because it's exposed them. So you know, one of the one of the interesting questions is what you might call the quantity quality trade off, and you know, for the environment, I think for human happiness as well, if you can basically create cultural norms around less but better, it, you know, you know, maybe you go on one really good holiday rather than going on three city breaks from an environmental perspective. Getting people to actually do less but do better is probably quite interesting because it's it's a non-zero sum way to solve all kinds of you know both mental health and environmental crises i think and i i wonder you know i'm intrigued to see whether that sticks or whether the whole pace of life returns to its slightly nonsensical frenetic um norm before the pandemic my hope is looking at previous pandemics actually the behavior sticks to some extent I want to mention, yeah. by the way, you've just completed your biggest ever investment round and you've got eight million from venture capitalists and private investors. And um, one of the investors, the investment director at Mundi Ventures, was quoted as saying that urban jungle are like a team of scientists. So is it, it's machine learning in particular, sort of multidimensional. How do you use machine learning? Because I always say there are two ways to do it. There's artificial intelligence, which looks for generalizable laws. But there's also artificial inquisitiveness, which looks for exceptions and anomalies. Do, do you sort of do both, in a sense, in your approach to uh, machine learning? So yeah, there's a couple of uh, different ways in which... Um, so that, that, that's um, Diego, the investment director at um, Mundi Ventures, you say, uh, that he's yeah, referring to. And one is about... Um, the way we make any decision, actually. It's not even about the machine learning stuff. So um, I think one thing that we've observed in you know, previous places we've worked or like companies we, we've seen uh, is that decision-making is far too often made on weak data or from mostly from preconceptions. And I think when you look at the industry and trying to disrupt an industry, um, you know, for a really good example of this is our customer base. So uh, the perception in the insurance industry is that young customers are terrible risks and you shouldn't insure them. Uh, and we've completely blown out of the water and we've just always said, prove it. What's the data? Show me the data. And, and no one ever had any data because it wasn't true. Um, and so uh, we've kind of, I guess, you know, really gone to town on that approach. So, you know, for example, whenever we're trying something new and we're spending a lot of money on it or a lot of time, we will construct a hypothesis that such and such thing is true. So, for example, um, we would have done this when we started advertising on TV, for example. Our hypothesis is that we can reach young customers economically on daytime TV if we do a good TV ad. Um, and then, you know, how, how do we test that? So we, you know, didn't just, like, go for it, um, we tried to construct uh, a kind of A-B test against that where uh, we showed the TV ad in some regions and not in other regions and then watched our trading in those regions uh, at the time of the TV ad as a kind of, you know, a control experiment. So um, that's like a pretty scientific way of doing things and making decisions and that just like pervades our whole business and, um, and I think is, is very, very helpful in terms of the way, way we've grown and, and, and kind of making decisions. And also just like, it has positive knock-on effects about the 
the way you make all your decisions. Like if you know someone's going to check later on whether it worked or not, then you, you're a bit more diligent about the decision to, to start off with. So I think that's part of the answer. Um, to answer your specific question about, um, about machine learning, so um, what we found, or our, our kind of ingoing hypothesis um, on the fraud side was that um, customers would leave a trail behind them if they were fraudulent. So that uh, actually uh, you interact a lot of times with your insurance company before you make a fraudulent claim. You've got to buy the policy. They'll often come and test out your customer service. They'll do some slightly funky things with payments. When they make the, the claim, there's all sorts of like, questionable things going on. Um, and, and to give you the stat, you know, uh, it, between 30 and 40% of claims in insurance are fraudulent, right? So this is not uh, small, it's a very, very big problem. Sorry, j- j- we'll just repeat that for the benefit of the listeners. 30 to 40% of claims yeah. are, are pretty much fraudulent. Oh, 100% fraudulent, Grief. yeah. Okay. Uh, so it's yeah, a big well, problem. Well, 100% fraudulent. Yeah. And then, then of the remainder of the honest claims, you've obviously got a slight problem with people exaggerating things, which is a, a further point, but yeah. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think we see much of that. And that the um, I think that culture has waned. I, I think that that you know was true ten or fifteen years ago, where it's like, oh yeah, just you know, particularly because you don't have insurance brokers anymore. I think the insurance brokers used to be the ones who would encourage you to be like, oh, you've got an excess on this policy, just claim for another three hundred quid to cover the excess. I'm sure you had an extra TV that you didn't mention. Um, oh, I see. So that partly explains why the X, because I always thought that an excess was a fairly reliable, costly signal that the person wasn't intending to claim fraudulently. But actually, what tended to happen, because I, I, it always struck me that actually, you know, someone, someone intend, intending to be fraudulent would tend to choose the lowest possible excess. And I always thought that might be an interesting clue. But you're right, by the way. Uh, I know from a long a long time ago experience in the direct marketing industry there was a colleague of mine who used do you remember those music things where they'd send you 10 cassettes for kind of ten dollars and then you'd have to sign up to receive another you know another cassette or cd every month yeah i remember those things yeah and one of the indicators they could spot fraud on two things the type of music you chose and i'm not going to say what kind of music were most indicative (laughs) of fraudulent uh, behavior because it, 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 I might be accused of stereotyping, but it was slightly le- It was not quite what you might expect. Um, by the way, and you know, I think you know there were certain things like punk and country which were worse. But the biggest indicator, the biggest indicator in the age of coupons was whether you clipped the coupon with a scissors, which tended to mean you're honest, or if you ripped it, it tended to mean you weren't. <laughs> so there are these funny little clues out there. Now, obviously, there's the danger that people game the system because they learn you know, essentially what you're looking for. Um, but for the most part, you find that actually there is a trail of kind of, uh, there's a trail of kind of little telling behaviours before someone makes a fraudulent campaign, uh, claim. Yeah, so um, you're right. People are pretty sophisticated. Um, a lot of the, the claimant behaviour isn't normal people. It's a, it is organised crime, right? So um, the, the big spike in insurance fraud came at the point of chip and pin. So it used to be able, doing a bit of credit card fraud was pretty easy. Chip and pin comes along, makes it a lot harder. All the organised crime groups are looking at what's the, what's the softest touch industry. I'm going to go after that. Um, so it was, was top of the list. Um, so they're quite sophisticated. I think one of the most important things is not being, um, not being seen as the easiest target, um, um, which we're definitely not. And I think historically you have seen like in fintechs like us, especially the, the banking ones, getting particularly targeted for fraud because there's an assumption that their fraud checks and their fraud screening is, is weaker. Um, so, so people will have a go. Uh, like I think we, uh, we, we don't think we get, we get more than anyone, but we've been pretty good all along at, at spotting it. So I think, you know, usually what would happen is they try one small claim, right? And then, then they hit you with the 20 the, ne- the next week if, you're, if you pay the small one. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's an unfortunate sort of element of the industry um, that you have to deal with that. And what, what's, what's the most frustrating thing about it is um, it can make you a bit cynical. So we really try not to be cynical about it. But obviously, you get loads of genuine claims as well, right? So you, you don't want to assume yes. everyone's a fraudster. In fact, you're here to help the people who aren't a fraud. So that's why I started the business. That's why you, you're trying to 
help other people. Um, so you have to try and be naive every time that you go into a claim. Um, and I guess that's, that's where the data stuff helps us because um, it gives us a lot of confidence. It's like, if our, fraud, if, our, if our fraud flags haven't been triggered by this claim, great, let's go, let's pay this thing, you know, get, get on with stuff. Whereas I think for a lot of the other insurance companies, because they're not very sophisticated, their default is, okay, this is probably fraud. Uh, I'm gonna treat you like a fraudster until proven otherwise. Guilty until, guilty until proven innocent, and I make this as hard as possible. Yes. Um, and so that's, I guess, you know, how we're trying to change things. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, this is really interesting because I, I was having a conversation with Roger L. Martin, the business writer, and the, he was the dean of the Rotman Business School at uh, the University of Toronto. And he, he always said there's a very good definition of strategy, and you meet this perfectly, which is a strategy is only a strategy if there are successful businesses doing the opposite of what you do. And your strategy is most of the insurance market thinks we want older people, they're more responsible, they're richer, uh, they're possibly less price sensitive, um, and they're less likely to claim. And you've essentially said, OK, we believe our hypothesis is that the opposite of that may also be true there's also a, a market uh, at the other end of that uh, uh, of that polarity because what he said is he said strategies which say you know we're going to care for our staff are meaningless he said that's not a strategy that's merely a claim that you're not going to do something stupid you know because no no you know what it says is we're not going to treat our staff like shit that's not a strategy because it doesn't involve any kind of sacrifice it doesn't involve any kind of um, decision to differentiate he said a strategy is only a strategy when there's already someone making a lot of money doing the opposite of the things you do. And I think you perfectly embody that, in fact, going into a market which is underserved because a whole bunch of convenient assumptions have permeated the insurance market. The charity market was interestingly the same in the sense that I worked in the charity market when the, the essential approach was we email a lot of older people and most of them don't reply, but what we aim for is people who'll give us £100, £200, £300. And the entire charity market was focused on a small number of very generous donors out of a mailing list. And someone then comes along and invent, effectively invents the, the £2 a month direct debit, which is, well, now actually direct debit's acceptable. We can actually try and get a lot of people to give a little over a longer period of time, with the additional advantage, of course, that once you're on a direct debit, you can phone up and upgrade people's monthly donation much more easily than you can... It's much easier to get someone from £2 to £5, both psychologically and 
bureaucratically than it is to get someone from naught to five or naught to ten. And so that was a classic case of saying, OK, uh, it's a great quote from Neil Spohr, the physicist, where he says the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. And I think you know, the opposite of a good business model is also a good business model. And I think there's something wrong with the way marketers often look at the market, which is they look for the sweet spot or the bell curve and they go, well, have a little bit of that. When, of course, by definition, it's an overcrowded market. And what you do there won't prompt you fundamentally to innovate because it doesn't force you to ask any really difficult or interesting questions. And what you're doing, I think, is, is really tremendous because it's saying, OK, funnily enough, First Direct started that way, didn't it? Which is its original mission, I think, was to actually serve the unbanked. Right. There was some okay. really strange <laughs> thing, which is the business case for First Direct. It ended up being an upmarket, high quality yeah. service. Yeah. Do, do, do you also notice, I just thought I'd ask the question, do you notice that you get accidental target people that you never expected, that weren't in your core demographic, to use the phrase, but weirdly you're, you're disproportionately popular with groups you didn't expect? Because that's quite often a discovery you make. When you, when you set out for one clearly defined audience, you sometimes find that as a byproduct you attract others. Any, any news on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's been super interesting. Um, and the analogy I, I, I use to tell the team of this, I don't know if you've ever been to any of them, but there's these like all over London now, these kind of pop up outdoor markets. Um, yeah. And they're absolutely designed you know, with like takeaway food and drinks. And they're, they're absolutely designed for 20 year olds to go out and have fun. You go to them anytime outside of the peaks at a Friday evening. They're full of older people because it turns out people really like sitting outside having a meal with their friends for cheap, which is what they are. Uh, and it's basically, they're just attracting this completely random audience. And we, we've seen the same, so, um, you know. They, they're we, also, they also have a magical strength, don't they? Because different people can eat from different outlets, yes, but sit yeah, at the yeah. same table. So if you've got one person who's a fussy eater, like a vegetarian or something, essentially, <coughs> if you suggest meeting at Box Park in Croydon, which as you say, Box Park would be, you know, if you ask them to describe their core target audience, to be honest, it's more their user imagery than their target audience. Because, yeah. I mean, a hell of a lot of people who buy Nike trainers are in their, you know, 50s and not remotely yeah, yeah, athletic, you know. So I always find that interesting that when you start a business for somebody, you actually end up with a much broader audience. And you make that point about, you know, those box park places, which is actually the, de the demography of those places is much broader than they would have assumed to begin with, I suspect. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, you're so right, it, you eat out of doors with a bunch of mates for free. Everybody can have what they like. It's the food court model because, you know, if there's one person who hates, you know, KFC at the food court, that doesn't veto everybody else from having it. And so, I, I mean, I, I agree with you that actually nearly always when you innovate with one target audience in mind, it's rather like the famous, you know, Good Grips example, which was, you know, uh, you know the idea was to produce utensils specifically for disabled people. But of course, anybody with butter on their hands is in a sense, they've lost some motor ability. And so yeah. Good Grips turned out to be very good utensils for just everyday use. Yeah. And I just yeah. find that so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so in our case... Um... You know, you make insurance cheap, you make it easy to buy, you make it all online. Suddenly there's these, these groups of people. But also, I just think more people were renting and if we, than we sort of thought existed. So we have a, a reasonably sizable niche in care homes. Um, so you think at the very end of your life, you often rent for that last bit effectively in a care home. And we'd built our product to work for students, for example, so that they had no locks on their doors. So you were in a sort of shared house with no locks on their doors, so our insurance works for that. But then it turns out it also works for care homes. So the care home residents themselves aren't buying it, but either the people who run the care home are buying it for them or their children are buying it for them. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's one. I mean, it, you know, uh, we started out, uh, yeah, again, in that younger audience. For example, a lot of social housing tenants who are a bit older um, will buy our policies just because they're, yeah, that, that whole thing of it, it's just easy, it's good value, like what's not to like, even if it's not completely designed for you. I mean, I think your discovery around actually insurance bought as a gift, albeit as a small anomaly, is really interesting because no one has ever... It obviously makes sense for a certain proportion of insurance to be bought as a gift, OK? You know, my own children in student accommodation, it would make sense for me to pay for it because, let's face it, I'm going to take the hit if they lose their laptop, 
okay? And yet, I've never seen any, a single sentence in insurance communications that suggests you might do that. Yeah, um, and we, we actually think we should probably make, uh, make that a bit bigger, especially around sort of Christmas time or something. But um, Yes. Uh, yeah, we do see a lot of it. I mean, one of the things is that most insurance won't allow you to buy a policy for someone else, and we've just always ah. allowed it. Um, and it was probably one of those things we sort of did by accident. We were like, yeah, you know, if someone wants to put their credit card in and buy insurance for someone else, like that's... <laughs> why why would we say, of course. Yeah, why would yeah. we say no? But everyone else just had a default no on it. Um, and yeah, we, over time we formulated some rules because we you know, worked at some things that didn't quite work with that. But uh, yeah, like um, it, is, it is quite a good gift, right? Um, the, the thing we see with the students that's interesting is most grown-ups, uh, I'm saying grown-ups, like you know, parents, um, um, I've got small children, they always refer to the rest of the grown-ups, but um, uh, most parents' insurance policies will cover your, your students' stuff while they're away. But what the students find is like, oh, yeah, I've you know, smashed my phone in a night out. And you bring up your parents say, oh, can you, ring, can you claim on your home insurance for my phone that I've just broken? And the parents are like, yeah, on your bike, mate. I'm not doing that and losing money, a claims bonus. There's absolutely no way. Um, so uh, it, it totally makes sense to actually, for the sake of, you know, a few quid a month, buying the student their own policy so that, you know, they start to build their own uh, sort of claims history or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's interesting, like, there's the sort of theory and practice of how these, the rubber hits the road in these things. It's, I mean, it's very interesting when you come to other areas of insurance, like motor insurance, for example. Um, it's patently clear that the way motor insurance works doesn't work for Gen Z, in the sense that what you probably want is far, for urban renters is far lower mileage allowances um, and also shorter periods of time which allow them to drive a greater variety of cars. Now, the reason I think that's important is that the insurance industry makes car sharing very, very difficult, okay? Because it's a pretty major commitment to add some other driver to your policy and actually depends on them actually, you know, confessing quite a lot about their past motoring history. Um, you also have, I think, the problem which is with electric cars, which is an obvious way to solve the electric car problem, is that... You know, if you can have an insurance policy where you can nominate someone else, you can effectively swap an electric for a petrol engine car five days a year for the one exceptional circumstance where you have to take a, you know, a vast trunk on a 500 mile journey. OK, which might happen once a year. Now, to be honest, no one with a Volvo estate, if you say to them, do you want to borrow my Tesla Model Y if I can have your Volvo? I don't think many people are going to say no to that option. But currently, until this new this new entity came along, it was basically very, very difficult to do. And yes. then people get nervous, which is, am I tampering with my no claims issue? So, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of interesting things on that. So um, some of the more innovative leasing companies now do some things where um, you can lease it so that you get, and the leasing includes the insurance, uh, you get a nice, comfortable, um, even like sports car for the week for your commute. Uh, and then they drop off, um, you know, some sort of people carrier type thing for the weekend when you've got the kids around. Um, so people are starting to experiment with those models. It's interesting. I mean, the thing on the sharing of cars or, uh, is that in most other countries, it does work. So in most other countries, you insure the car, not the person. So mm. it doesn't matter who drives your car. You only say roughly how many miles you're going to drive. But, uh, you know, the car's there, the car's insured. Who cares who's driving it? In most other countries, it's like, it's only in the that UK. That explains why the US, I think, is different, isn't it? But it does explain why I've noticed, you know, is that why valet parking, I suppose valet parking has its own separate insurance, doesn't it? But I've always noticed that in, other, in, in films set in other countries, you occasionally get people lending someone their car very casually. And I'm sitting there going, you can't do that. Yeah, it and, is. Yeah, um, it, it's like that. Yeah. And so we've just created a social norm where your car is a bit like your mobile phone. You know, we become highly possessive about them. Now, there must be flat shares where it would make obvious sense, you know, for them to, to arrive at some, you know, communal agreement. And it's just incredibly difficult to do. Yeah, and that, yeah. That kind of multi-party risk is is one of the things that we cover. Um, and it, in the early days, definitely, I remember talking to these, because so we're backed by the insurer, some of the big insurers and reinsurers, right? So every time I sell an insurance policy for a fiver, someone could turn around and claim 40 grand the next day for the for a fire yes. or something, right? So uh, until we've got a bigger balance sheet, you know, we always need to work with the, the big insurers. Um, 
and trying to persuade them to work with all these young people. They get themselves tied in knots around what if someone owns a quarter of a television because they bought it together and I'm only insuring one of them and not all of them and how does that all work? Um, And I think sometimes you just can get too much into the detail of these things and if you just say, look, it's insured, it costs roughly this much and it all works out in the mix, Uh, which I think would be much better in, again, in the motor world, as you say, insure the car, it it all comes out in the wash in the end anyway, let's not worry about it. And then I suppose... You know, I mean, I've always thought it's a major problem with drink driving, actually, which is you occasionally have people where, you know, under different circumstances, they could get someone to come out and drive their car home. OK, you know, funnily enough, it was always a major beef of mine before parking apps came in, which is now just to be really, really clear, I never did this. OK, but if you got off a train slightly pissed, OK, and it was Friday evening and in order not to get a parking ticket, you'd have to get up at eight o'clock the following morning, travel into Seven Oaks Station to collect your car because otherwise you'd get a ticket because there was no way of buying an advanced ticket. OK, that struck me, not for me, I hasten to add, but it was a fairly strong inducement for, you know, five people on a Friday night to drive home slightly over the limit or, or extremely over the limit in, in cases. And, I, you know, I, I don't think government's very good at looking at these joined up questions, which is, you know, what actually drives people to do that behaviour? Well, to be honest, you know, it's not that they can't get a taxi home. It's actually to do with the fact that their car's going to get a 30 quid ticket. Now, fortunately, the parking app, as long as you're sober enough to remember to book the thing, the parking app does kind of solve that problem. Um, but nonetheless, you know, there, one interesting thing, I suppose, with, with your insurance, with younger audiences, they tend to be a bit more teched up or it's easier. Do you actually offer discounts for having things like webcams, things like, for example, uh, I mean, leak detectors? Are those things quite exciting? So we, uh, we thought about that in the early days um, and it was kind of, so telematics is a big thing in motor insurance, right? So you can get a much cheaper deal if you put, put a box in your car. So there's, there's a kind of obvious thing, it's like telematics for your home. So you put all these boxes in your home and then obviously it reduces your risk. Um, the, the, the main challenge is, if you think about it for even more than a couple of minutes, is uh, our average policy is about a tenner a month um, and the devices cost... 100 quid each so in order to pay back the devices you've got a you know it's sort of like a 10-year payback or something like that of course um so uh it it just doesn't it just doesn't make sense ultimately um i think there there has been a couple of players who sort of had a go at that they mostly focus on the really high-end space so if you're a super high net worth and you're your insurance is actually a grand a month because you've got all these like fancy things, then it starts to make sense. But at our end of the market, not really. No, I understood, yeah. I mean, there, there is, I suppose, a bonus which makes your business much more po- possible than it would have been in my, in my youth, which is, I suppose, theft of electronic devices, with the exception of laptops to some degree has diminished fairly significantly, hasn't it? In that, uh, partly, I suppose, that's eBay, isn't it? If you want want to buy a second-hand telly of no known provenance, you can actually do it legally through eBay rather than having to meet a bloke in the pub. So it it seems to be the case that, you know, that home break-ins for the theft of electronic equipment for a, a, a whole variety of mixed reasons seems to have diminished fairly significantly, hasn't it? Yeah, and things like better locks, and um, as I mentioned before, it's easier to have a go at a bit of insurance fraud than break into someone's house um, and take the risk of getting caught by the police or smashed over the head with a baseball bat. Um, We do, I mean, we do see still, uh, probably the bigger impact actually on the home insurance industry has been uh, oven chips. So um, chip pan fires used to be massive, uh, now obviously non-existent. Um, So... Uh, that that's been a big change. Um, we do see that. The so it actually would have it would have paid effectively the insurance industry to bribe McCain or to fund their advertising, because yeah. it makes yeah yeah hundred percent yeah the chip the chip fat fire was effectively the you know the single big cause of and of course it involved a huge amount even if it wasn't a particularly gruesome fire it involved a huge amount of redecoration didn't it and because the smoke and everything yeah exactly yeah um, yeah. So, but uh, I think the one we see now, uh, like crime changes, right? So um, mobile phones snatched at uh, railway stations and tube stations is, is a big one. So mopeds, 
because you didn't used to carry, you know, a grand worth of phone with you around in your pocket all the time. So that's new. Um, and then the, uh, the other one, basically since March of last year, or, or perhaps when it started losing up a little bit last year, is bikes. So suddenly yeah. no one wants to be on public transport. Everyone wants a bike. Um, There's a fashion for really bike. expensive bikes as well, isn't there? Which, which yeah. you know, they've gone from being utilitarian to being a fashion statement to a degree. Yeah. And criminals can sell bikes on eBay too. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. the bike theft has just gone through the roof. I mean, it's, a, it's incredible. Um, and it, yeah, it's just a very easy, quick buck for criminals um, sort of, you know, you, you can, with, you can buy online. I mean, this is the other thing on, uh, you know, you go on eBay as well. You buy a handheld angle grinder for 50 quid. You can be through a bike lock in uh, 15 seconds and, and off you go with a grand's worth of bike. Like it, um, of, of course. Yeah. And you can do it at real speed. And I mean, there are a few things very, it's very interesting because what people are frightened of and what is the actual risk for an insurer often misalign very badly. And I've always, I've, I've talked to the Thames Valley Police about this and I've said, actually, there's a role for bringing back the public information film. So one thing is a very major form of theft is effectively breaking into someone's house just to steal the car keys, which in some cases are within arm's reach of the front door. Now, nobody think nobody's aware of this. And so, you know, I used to go on holiday, actually, I'm, you know, leaving my car keys in a bowl within, you know, if I took a taxi or a train to the airport, I just leave the car keys in a bowl and the car was parked outside. The police really hate it, by the way, because, of course, it counts as two thefts rather than one. So it makes yeah. their statistics look worse. Then there is an interesting one which I learned, which is that use parking apps because pay and display advertises to car thieves how long you're going to be gone for. <laughs> That's interesting. Now, until I had my car broken into, that never occurred to me. And the guy who turned up from the police said, we hate pen display because it basically says to anybody dodgy, OK, I'm gone all day. You know, I'm going to be gone all day. You can take your time over this. Um, and then there are a few other ones. For example, most people are much more frightened of fire than they are of flood, um, even though, you know, burst pipes are actually a worse problem. And there is scope. Uh, if the insurance company got together, it could actually create more intelligent fears, I think. Because, you know, what people are frightened of often tends to be newsworthy things. So, for example, it's actually pretty rare for pensioners to get mugged. OK, but a lot of pensioners are absolutely terrified because when a pensioner does get mugged, it's a newsworthy story. Whereas when a 26 year old gets mugged, it isn't. Mm. And so so our, our, the way in which the news actually shapes our fears and, of course, our fears are sometimes out of date because they depend on the. And as you said, criminals move from credit card fraud to insurance fraud because chip and pin. Um, uh, so, so it's chip and pin and the oven chip are actually the two, <laughs> yeah. the two biggest insurance innovations going forward. I think, I think leak detection is, is relevant because those, those bits of equipment can be relatively cheap, can't they? Now, it may not be that relevant in your case because it's kind of a landlord's problem a bit. But nonetheless, there is a, you know, there is scope for, I think, leak detection equipment. You could do that for a pound a month conceivably, couldn't you? Well, I think as on a personal level, right? Yeah, the, the devices are cheap. You know, mm. yes, you're insured, but it's much better to not have the leak. So I don't know if any you know, everyone listening will have heard of these, but basically they're, they're a little thing that goes around your pipe. They're pretty smart. They can detect the flow of water. And if the flow of water at a certain point goes to zero, you basically work out that somewhere, or, or it decreases significantly at a certain time of day, that there's a leak somewhere. You then know, it, it notifies you immediately, you know there's a leak, like within an hour, not within two days when it started. Which is a huge, yeah. Having had a leak with, actually someone in the flat downstairs had a leak, it wasn't us, but having had a leak which went on for something like six hours, it was only discovered by my wife, who heard a strange noise. Without it, the people are on holiday, the leak would have actually played out for another sort of 48 hours or something and would have been utterly catastrophic. And so I, th- I think it is interesting that, that I don't think people are well informed. And it would, you know, the insurance industry really should get together and tell people where the risks lie. Yeah. Um, because, because you get a lot of people worried about things which are secondary um, and, uh, and, and blasé about things which is where the real problems emerge and the police are conscious of this that what people are frightened of and what the real problems are aren't very well aligned um, but no, it, it, I think it's fascinating because I think I mean, part of the reason I think that, that ensuring the young became more feasible was the old uh, you know a stolen, the stolen TV as it were did diminish didn't it and that became a less worth and that may have been partly DNA part, you know 
fingerprint databases. I'm not quite sure what the technology was. Partly eBay. But I always find this very interesting because we often find out I'm delighted by your oven chip thing. Now, it always interests me to see how quite often big knotty problems are solved not directly by government action but they're actually solved by a combination of three apparently unconnected things you know a mixture of ebay obviously you know um uh, the problem with mobile phones presumably is that you can still factory reset them is that the great issue uh yeah exactly um yeah but- or just uh, even the component tree is worth a lot. So ah. uh, move move like a load of them to another country and you can basically rebuild another phone with all the component tree. Ah, got it. I understood. So I, I find it really interesting because these are beautiful sort of examples of complex system problems. And I just find it just really interesting to, um, uh, to investigate them because I find the insurance industry with your data, in a sense, you know, the potential for uh, data discovery... Um, and, and this is one of the things as a marketer I get a bit grumpy about, which is that so often we essentially, first of all, it's worth noting all big data comes from the past. And we're always in danger, I think, of over-optimizing a business on 10 years of past data. And actually, uh, you know, the past actually is, you know, in, in certain circumstances, post a pandemic, an increasingly bad guide to the future. And yet businesses find it generally satisfactory to optimise by extrapolating from, you know, what happened previously. And I think that's a major block to innovation. And what you've done is exactly the Roger L. Martin thing, where you go, okay, there are a lot of people making money in this space. We're going to see how much money you can make in the opposite. And I think think that's really tremendous. So do you think your mindset will increasingly pervade the, the rest of the insurance industry? Or do you suspect that they're so set in their ways that um, they'll just keep on doing what they were doing. Well, so that, that's the aspiration, right? So, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I started the business um, really to, because I was just a frustrated consumer. Um, yeah. And I could see how bad the industry was and how, how bad a personal experience I was getting. So, you know, to, to you know, so we're, we're sort of four years into our journey. Let's say we get to the decade and I, I'm looking back on what we've achieved. Um, if we haven't made other people get better, then I will, you know, even if we have built a big successful business, if the rest of the industry is still just as bad and no one's noticed, then I would, I would count that as a failure. So, um, you know, I think for us, we think the more painful we can be for the big guys, um, the more we can call them out, like talking to you about calling out some of the bad practices or just, you know, pointing that out to customers and, and get change to happen. Like that's really what we, uh, what we want to see. So we've just, um, we've also, you know, we're talking about targeting. So we've just expanded into homeowners. Um, so we particularly focus within that on our same quite young customers, so younger homeowners, who again, still not really the target market of any of the big guys. They're much more focused, as you say, on the older, richer, high net worth. Um, and, but, but the more we get into the space of the big guys, I suspect the more we will see them hurting um, and noticing us and, um, and you know, pro- hopefully sort of changing their ways to cover us uh, a bit more. And hopefully customers will you know, start to see benefit from that. Well, that, that, this is a, a, you've got a wonderfully benign view. In some ways, I suspect, with, it, with a couple of exceptions. And you might actually benefit, by the way, if the, if the category becomes slightly... Lo- you know, if you have a few competitors in a category, it can be to your advantage, counterintuitively, because you've now created a category and you've created a norm. So sometimes behaviourally, actually, having a couple of, of competitors in your direct space uh, doesn't necessarily hurt. Um, uh, it's, it, it's what I think is called the Colgate-Crest phenomenon, you know, that people tend to stay very, very loyal then within the category. And so, you know, they may go to Crest and then go back to Colgate. But ultimately, you know, you actually uh, you ha- have quite a lot of what you might call it's almost serial monogamy um, uh, within uh, within a category. This is Jimmy Williams. I've been talking to from Ur- Urban Jungle. Thank you enormously for your time today. I don't want to take up any more of your time because you seem to be doing God's work. So thank you very much indeed. Thanks very much for having me. Great pleasure. It just remains for me to say that, well, that's all for this episode of On Brand. Uh, The podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, just visit their website, which is alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F Insight, all one word, dot com. Uh, The series is produced and expertly edited. I have to add, you need expert editing when you've got me on board by Ultimate Sound and Vision. 
And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then give us a like. It all helps in that search engine thingy. So all remains for me to say now is thanks for listening. And Jimmy, once again, thank you very much indeed. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.